You're listening to the Voices for Nature podcast. Cocktails, controversy and conservation. Brought to you by the Nature Conservation Council. And here are your hosts, Chris Gambian and Jackie Mumford. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the first ever instalment of Cocktails, Controversy and Conservation. My name is Chris Gambian. I'm the Chief Executive of the Nature Conservation Council of New South Wales, and I am your host for tonight. Uh, This is NCC's brand new seminar series, which we hope you'll find both informative and fun. We thought a quiet drink on a Thursday night would be nice. And if we learn something along the way, that'd be a bonus as well. Now, the last time I organised a seminar series, 14 people came. Um, Tonight, we are expecting just over a thousand, which just goes to show that Australians are more than happy to engage in political issues just as long as we don't need to put on pants and leave our houses. <laughs> if it works, we'll do this every two weeks on a Thursday night. And if we're ever actually allowed to leave our houses again, we'll start doing them from our new offices in Chippendale. The last couple of months have been stressful for most people. Social distancing, homeschooling, the threat of a difficult and imminent death. It really makes you pine for the good old days when the greatest existential threat confronting us all was still a good 10 years away. But the drought and the bushfire season have been a harsh reminder just recently of how serious a threat climate change is. And we've seen that it's not just some theory for the distant future, it's our reality right now. I first met Rebecca Huntley more than 15 years ago, and let's face it, that time was probably over a cocktail too. She's one of (laughs) the foremost social researchers, which in practice means she's spent an awful lot of time listening to Australians from all walks of life. Her insights into the climate change debate revealed in her new book, How to Talk About Climate Change. But before we hear from Rebecca, let me welcome my co-host this evening, NCC's organising director, Jackie Mumford. Jackie, did you just get this job because you're a booze hound? Look, that's not why I got the job, Chris, but since you've started, I feel I'm well on the way to becoming a booze hound. Uh, But while I'm talking booze, I'll let you know that um, I'm drinking something that I made up inspired by the hashtag for this evening, which is uh, nature's happy hour. Um, It has a lime in it. So, you know, green, nature, you get the the vibe. Um, And for those watching at home, uh, make sure you use the hashtag if you've got questions for Rebecca tonight. Um, That was hashtag nature's happy hour. Um, And if you're talking about the event on any of your social media platform of choice, uh, make sure you use that. Um, and as is generally the case in my job, uh, Chris comes up with some wonderful idea and then we all have to work out how to make it happen. So that being the case tonight, it's my job uh, to put Chris's idea into action um, and just to let all of you know how this is actually going to work this evening. So we, the hosts for the evening, Chris and myself and Rebecca, uh, have the power. Now, this is not our usual style at NCC, but you're not at the annual conference now. For tonight, we're in charge. So if you have a question, step one, ask yourself, is this really a question? We're not taking comments. There will be no grandstanding. If you want to make a comment, you can go to our Facebook page and comment away on the live stream there. So step two, if you do actually have a question, type it into the Q&A box on your Zoom screen. And if it's a good question, we'll read it out so Rebecca can answer. And of course, if you need a drink, please get up, go and help yourself. Um, We're recording tonight's talk, so you can watch it back later and it'll be on our Facebook page, as I mentioned. And if you are enjoying yourself, which I hope you all are, make sure you head along to nature.org.au and make a donation. 
because as we know, koalas grow on trees, but money does not. I think that about covers it, Chris. Okay, we better introduce Rebecca. Now, Rebecca, you have already outed yourself as not actually be drinking a cocktail right now. No, no, no. Sorry, I, I do need to be very careful about how I, what I say and how I respond. This is being live on Facebook and recorded, and so I'm rather scrupulous. So I've no, no alcohol, just mint tea. So we um, uh, first advertised this event, um, and it was revealed that this was going to be about climate change. Um, a, uh, a fellow jumped on the page and, and commented, and uh, Rob, and he said uh, that. Um, the problem with climate, the climate change hoax, is that uh, it has discredited science uh, as a discipline, and that's why nobody's taking coronavirus seriously. Uh, is Rob right? Have we got some from him? Uh, well, there's so much to unpick there. I mean, I don't think we can say that Australians aren't taking coronavirus seriously. In fact, I've been involved in a really extensive piece of research for the ABC, which shows that um, a, a large majority of Australians are taking not only coronavirus seriously, changing their behaviour, but are not supportive of the idea that restrictions should be lifted at any, one, any time. So there's actually very little evidence that Australians across the border take, aren't taking coronavirus seriously. The only group that aren't taking it seriously have a lot in common with climate deniers. <laughs> so the second thing I would say is this. Um, Science has not been discredited by, by climate change. I won't even use the word hoax. Um, uh, climate change has been discredited by and been, and been undermined in some parts of the public mind by an extremely well-resourced, consistent campaign against it that has gone on for about 30 years. Um, but despite that campaign, despite that campaign, we still have the vast majority of Australians who believe that climate change is real, that human beings are contributing to it, that it poses an imminent risk to us, a risk to us of the future, and that governments should do something about it. So actually, despite this consistent campaign to discredit climate science and climate scientists, the public, the majority of the public, still believe it's real. Now, whether they really worry about it when they vote or when they buy things. It's a whole other ball game. Um, to call it a hoax, and I would say that word is something that comes up quite often in very, very small groups of the community, so people we would describe as dismissive or denial, uh, uh, deny climate change. And in countries like Australia and America, you know, the people who think that climate change is a hoax are anywhere between maybe, depending on how you define deny, um, denial, anywhere between 20 to kind of maybe single digits of the population. So this gentleman who commented um, uh, on this Facebook page, sorry, it's a lengthy, it's a lengthy, um, it took a little while for me to unpack that, is actually wrong on three counts. <laughs> three, well, excellent. So... That's probably a good segue into what we're going to be talking about tonight. In your book, um, you offer us some hope that it's possible to talk to people about climate change. And certainly um, at the NCC, climate change is, it can't not be one of our priority campaign areas. Um, what's your advice? How, how do we talk to people, particularly, I guess, uh, people who um, are not the, the sort of extreme nut jobs, but actually people who um, perhaps are the people we genuinely need to win over? 
Yeah, oh, look, I've been, the book is really an attempt to really understand why people have um, the reaction they do to climate change. And it, it draws very much on really, really interesting psychological research being done by, in the academy and, and in market research around the world. And so in June of last year, I went to visit the Yale program. And the Yale program has had um, a kind of communication, social, um, social scientist focus on climate change for about 12 years. And, you know, really fascinating people doing work there. They do the very famous Six America study, but they also have terrific postdocs doing really, really interesting work on messaging. And one of the things that really intrigued me about climate communication is that when we talk about climate change to people, so many so-called negative emotions get prompted by a climate change discussion. So guilt, fear, anger, I mean, these can be productive emotions, but generally we see them as, as negative emotions. And one of the things that was really interesting to me is like, how do we harness really positive emotions to get people to engage with climate? And so one of the emotions that I really was starting to explore was this notion of how can we mobilise issues around things like love and care when we talk about climate change? And of course, the climate movement have tried to do that a lot with the idea of things like, um, you know, places we love and places we care for and we try and, you know, harness all of that when we think about um, how we get people to act on climate change. And it was when I was at Yale that I met this extraordinary woman um, uh, called Lindsay. And Lindsay was a postdoc there. She'd been a journalist and really fascinated about climate change. And she told me about some great work that she'd done for a large kind of 100-year-old heritage um, American organisation called the Audubon Society. And for some of those people out there, how many have we got so far, Chris, at the moment, listening into us? We have 316 um, on Zoom and countless thousands on Facebook. Wow. So I think that in that group, we're likely to have some people who are twitchers. Do you know what a twitcher is? I do. I didn't <laughs> admit that I didn't know what a twitcher was until I started in this job, but okay. very close to becoming one, I suspect. Yeah, so twitches are bird watchers, and um, and bird watchers are fascinating people. Birds are fascinating people. Actually, Sally McManus, who is the um, secretary of the NCTU, is a twitcher. So you know, you probably know a twitcher, and there'll be twitchers out there. So the Audubon Society is basically the bird protection, the bird conservation, the, the premier bird conservation society in America. And Lindsay was somebody who had gone as head of kind of campaigning, um, head of kind of programs and activism at the Audubon Society and was really keen to do some work around climate change. Now, for, for lots of heritage organisations rather than kind of political environment organisations, the Audubon Society is full of people who are kind of old-fashioned naturalists, right? And so they tend to skew older, they sometimes tend to skew towards men, tend to skew as well towards white men, and, and they tend to have a, a much broader political background than, let's say, the membership of Greenpeace or the membership of any other kind of large, kind of more politically active conservation um, kind of environmental organisation. So it was a bit of a challenge, Lindsay had a bit of a challenge to convince the board that it was worth doing climate work. Um, because a lot of their members was conservative and some of them were also kind of apolitical. But one of the things she decided to do, because she really felt that this was something that could happen, because these guys, these men and women loved birds. These are people who sit in a kind of a 
wet, damp patch for hours to be able to kind of see a particular bird nesting. And they're also really attached to birds, like emotionally attached to birds, because in America, every state has a bird and often their local football team or their state football team um, is their mascot is a bird. Um, so they're really important. Now, of course, because of climate change and a range of other things, many, many of the, of the state birds of America are being threatened, um, are threatened um, if, with extinction or threatened with, um, you know, kind of basically really reduced numbers. And, of course, as bird watchers, they can see the changing habitat and the changing nature of the birds. Now... Basically, Lindsay found a way to convince this board that some old-fashioned climate activism was something that this much more conservative, much older, um, not very politically active, not very left-wing membership were prepared to embrace. And her first stage, which I thought was really fascinating um, and really great, was she, in, and as a researcher as well, loved, loved it as well, and I got to see the research, is that she decided to do some research with members on what they didn't like about the traditional climate change narrative, like what pissed them off. And we all know what that narrative is. We could all probably recite it and we hear it all the time. And she had a feeling that for this group of people who had a connection to nature, so they loved nature and they loved a particular part of nature, there was no need to connect this, this natural this natural object with their lives and the things that mattered. So it was, it was not disconnected. And they were also aware that something was changing. So you didn't have to convince them that the birds were under threat and that the environment around was changing and actually threatening this thing that they loved. So you had a really, really good starting point. And her point was you don't start with an argument about climate change, you start with the things that people love. You start with, and there's a really fantastic term in some of the climate literature called an object of care. What is the thing that matters to somebody? Rather than kind of going straight out of the gate with this is what's happening with climate change, work out what matters to people. So she knew that there was no task available there, but she also knew that the traditional climate narrative was something that was going to basically um, basically stop engagement and conversation with this particular group of people. And so she did some research specifically on what do you not like about the climate narrative. And there were two things that they found difficult. One thing they found really difficult was um, extreme, what they saw as extreme projections about what was going to happen in the future. Um, they really found that difficult. So they, if you've highlighted that, you ended up stopping the conversation. So they found a way kind of to... Not, not lie about it, but diminish it, not make it at the centre of the messaging. And the second thing that they found, which I thought was really fascinating, was they were very careful about language around responsibility and blame. And what a lot of psychological research has shown about more conservative voters is they actually take this notion of personal responsibility extremely, you know, very, very, very seriously. And so, again, they also thought that issue that really pointing the finger of blame and responsibility on individuals, them as individuals, was something that they weren't comfortable with as well. So, essentially, what they did with this research, with this group, is they kind of found a way to rewrite the traditional climate change narrative um, to be able to say, to connect birds with action. So, I almost think it's like how you, if you had a map of... Um, 
a, a field full of landmines, how you might find a way to kind of tiptoe around the landmines to kind of get where you want. And then the other thing I thought was really fascinating is that, and this is actually, you know, key to any climate messaging, you're kind of thinking about who are you talking to? What's their mindset? What are you getting them to engage in? Like what issue? Um, and what are you getting them to do? Really, really important things that you ask about when you think about how you change a climate change message. And one of the things they found was really important, and this shows the significance of social norms and, and how people feel exposed when they talk about climate change. One of the things they found was really important, really hard to get this group to do was to share climate messaging on social media with their friends. They were more open to going to their elected representative as a group or doing other kind of action than they were to broadcast their concern about climate change through social media. Even though social media, even though it's so much easier to think, oh, get them to share it. They were not keen on doing it, but they were keen on other forms of discussion. And, you know, one of the things that was so beautiful about Lindsay talking about doing these um, focus groups and research with members who were bird watchers is that you, if you actually found a way to start the conversation about the concern they had for birds, and she said to me, I've never seen 70 year old men in hunting jackets cry because they were worried about the, you know, red cardinal never being able to nest in their local area. And she said, it was, you know, the, the, there was passion, there was passion there. And making sure that you didn't dissipate that passion by setting off these landmines about a, a, a climate a climate script that very much didn't gel with their political and social and cultural identity, and then to get them to find a really effective way where they were comfortable about acting that didn't necessarily expose them too much to their social um, network was really important as well. So, interesting the. Um one of the questions we've just had on the Q&A line, yeah. um, uh, you know, there are, uh, there's a cohort of people who agree that climate change is real, they, yeah. that something needs to be done about it, um, but they're not ready to take the next step yeah. to the action that is necessary to yeah. or to reduce the risk of climate change. Yeah. And I liked the line that the person, you know, I've lost the person's name, I'm sorry, but um, I think he said, you know, is it that they're just... Uh, worried that in order to take climate action, you've got to always just use public transport and become a vegetarian. Like, is that... That's right. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's right. And I think one of the things... I mean, this, this issue about barriers to action is really kind of a critical one. In many ways, we've, 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 we've got as close as we can to a consent... You know, a kind of majority view that climate change is happening, real... We're making a contribution, we have to do something about it. And certainly after the last election, I thought that research is just not useful to me anymore. What I need to know is what are people prepared to do? And I suppose one of the things, the first thing you even think about before you even think about, you know, whether somebody's prepared to become a vegetarian and catch a bus, is you've really got to measure their sense of trust and efficacy. Like where do they feel that they have power and where do they feel the most the easiest most effective levers in their life are to bring about change and for, and that's really a kind of understanding people's personal identity now if you say to somebody that their best contribution to climate change is to take the bus and and actually they've got three kids and don't live anywhere near a bus route then that's not going to work you know what that's going to make them feel is that that involvement in climate change is impossible. So I think that we have to talk about 
you know, hundreds and thousands of pathways towards action and not necessarily think that there's just one particular way of doing that. Um, and, of course, when we present kind of, you know, um, these kinds of, these kinds of, that there is only kind of one path to action, then it's very easy for our, um, our detractors to kind of describe us as, as zealots and not flexible and not realistic and all the rest of it. And so I think that happens as well. So, I mean, what I thought was so fascinating about the bird watchers is that, you know, some really understanding them and what they were prepared to do and what, what climate action triggered in them, the emotional feelings and the sense of social consensus and social norms around them allowed you to say, well, actually, all these things that we would suggest to some activists or some people if we were trying to get them involved, don't, we're not even going to mention them. But we're actually going to mention a whole lot of other stuff that previously we might have thought was quite difficult. I mean, Lindsay Salt, some of these people actually got together and went and as groups of bird watchers, you know, the concept of a collective noun of bird watchers, I don't know what that is, <laughs> I don't know what the collective noun of twitches is. There are a few um, twitches on the line, on the chat line. We've got a few oh, twitches outing themselves, so we've definitely got a few twitches. Oh, hi, twitches. Well, I, I thought of a kind of a contingent of twitches going to see, you know, the local mayor or the local governor or whatever, saying to them, you've got to do something. And a lot of the stuff that they were saying, you know, very traditional climate action, you know, around, you know, stopping deforestation and, you know, a whole range of things in terms of, you know, control of pollution, all the rest of it, movement to renewable energy, um, protecting and expanding national parks, all that kind of stuff. Um, so you kind of almost, I wouldn't say tricked, but you always find a way to engage these people to make them become traditional environmentalists without forcing them through an environmental frame in terms of their identity so it was really focused on getting them to act rather than absolutely confronting their identity whether that be as a conservative or somebody who didn't see themselves as a progressive or didn't even really think about politics and what the work that Yale has shown is that given the massive um, polarization political polarization around climate in places like America and Australia what has happened is that it becomes impossible to really talk about climate change without immediately confronting or reinforcing people's identity, their political identity, right? And, and one of the problems is that climate change has is, is now very much firmly seen as something that is, you know, something that only left-wing people or progressive people care about. And that's first of all, that's not entirely true, but second of all, that's really a that's just a really destructive and problematic way of, of, of looking at saving the world. Conservatives have an investment in saving the world too, and they should have one. A couple I'd of like to pick up on something, Rebecca. Yeah, sure. Uh, just something you were saying there about uh, the hope and you know that message of giving people positive and hopeful uh, sort of pathways to action, and thinking about the response to coronavirus. And we've seen a lot of mutual aid groups uh, sort yeah. of pop up and people helping out um, in their neighbourhoods and their communities and that yeah. kind of thing. Um, and that cuts across political lines. Mm. But you know, do you think there's something that we can learn from the response to coronavirus um, in how we speak to people about climate change and how we empower people to take action? Look, I think I think that there are some very easy, and there were very early on some very easy and perhaps too easy connections made between climate change and 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 um, coronavirus. I think there are some learnings. I mean, I am very um, 
I'm very cautious about what they are because I think we're going to have some short, medium and long-term impacts from coronavirus and they're not, in Australia at least, not yet certain of what they are. What I do think is that one of the difficulties about climate change in Australia is that it's continually positioned as an impossible problem, right, an intractable problem, one that major political parties and even minor political parties can't deal with. And so the community thinks nobody seems to be able to do anything about this and there's a sense that it's kind of stuck, mainly stuck because of the political system rather than necessarily because the majority of people don't want anything to do about it. So, But the, in the, the political players also say, well, the community is stuck. They say they care about it, but they don't vote about it. So everybody feels like it's, it's, it's moving at the state of molasses while, the, while actually climate change itself... Um, well, climate change is moving at a glacial pace, not an old glacial pace, but a new glacial pace. But, but <laughs> politics is moving at a glacial pace, an old glacial pace, not a new one. So one, I, one of the things that I think, um, one of the things that I think is, is going to be a takeaway from um, COVID-19, if we manage to flatten the curve and keep it flat and find ourselves in 12 months' time better off than the rest of the world, is that it may actually say to us, look, something enormous can happen and everybody can change their behaviour quite quickly, not necessarily just to protect themselves, but to protect the community. That government can play a really important critical role in mobilising all the possible levers of government, all possible kind of, you know, power of government to facilitate that and that some businesses, certainly not all, but some businesses can find a way to step up to make that happen. So it gives people a little bit of confidence, a little bit of trust that we are more powerful than the problems that face us. And where we see that is we have seen a, a not huge, but significant uptick in trust in government, all levels of government, trust in our leaders and belief that we can actually make it happen. So we need to build and sustain that kind of experience and kind of um, confidence into what is a much more a much more kind of politically vexed and and more spread out crisis um, that we face with climate change. Now, uh, Rebecca, we've, there's a question that's come through on the Q and A, yeah. and uh, this is probably not a bad one to wrap up on. Um, but uh, Stephen has asked, given that we've got the Eden Monaro by-election coming up shortly, um, and we know that at the last state election in the seat of Monaro, uh, mm. the Nationals got a 10% swing towards them. They were pro-coal, they were pro-logging, they were pro all those things. Mm. What sort of, given that we're going to be speaking to a similar cohort of people in this yes. by-election, um, what's your advice to uh, conservationists in that area who want to have some influence in the election? Well, look, I think... I think one of the things, and you know, I think one of the things that's really difficult in this situation is one of the reasons why people, and particularly at a time like now, that people might feel like the industries, and particularly those fossil fuel industries who have, um, let's face it, built prosperity in Australia for so long, that we might have to rely on them, is part of that, that sense that the that what might be delivered by an alternative is either not yet in place or not necessarily going to deliver the same level of prosperity or the same level of job security. So 
you know, part of you, part of you wants to say in a seat like that, look, the future is not these industries, the future is other industries that are going to generate jobs and cheaper energy and are the industries of the future. Part of that's trying to, how do you engender trust in people that that is going to be delivered in time for their needs, which seem more immediate now than ever before. So part of this is really about, and, and part of this too is about building a really concrete picture for people about what that economy that is built on renewable energy rather than fossil fuels, what that economy looks like, what that, those jobs look like. And, we, and all the research that I do here still shows that people see the fossil fuel industry as delivering more jobs, better paid jobs, more secure jobs and, and jobs that you build communities off the back on, off, of, you know, you build communities with. And they see the renewable energy sector as building fewer jobs, even though that's not the case, jobs that are more short term, jobs that require certain kind of technical expertise, potentially even provide jobs that from people overseas coming here. They have a very, very different, even though it's not necessarily based in fact, but a very, very different emotional cultural feel around those two jobs so part of it's about making it really concrete for those people that you know that government and industry can deliver jobs community safety and prosperity in the time allocated and that that is a challenge and we're really behind the eight ball with that that's something that we should have started talking about 30 years ago <laughs> and rebecca thanks so much there are so many great questions um on the chat oh. Um, shame to not be able to spend two hours, but like all good, uh, like all good TV shows, it must come to a. We <laughs> finish by six, so it's just after. Yeah. But before yeah. we go, we were hoping you would agree to play just a little quiz game with us. Sure. This is a game called Barra or Trump. Oh wow! Do I get an immunity pin if I win? Yeah. Yep. Okay, I've been watching a lot of MasterChef. All right. I'd the problem. Oh, wow. The game. We're gonna. Jackie's gonna read five quotes out. Okay. It's your job to tell us what was it said by New South Wales Deputy Premier and not to be candidate for Eden Monaro, John Barillaro, <laughs> or yeah. was it said by Donald Trump? Okay. Yeah, um, in the White House. So okay. Mumford, go for it. All right, I'm ready. Uh, before I do, though, I'd like to say that John Barillaro represents the electorate of Monero. For anybody uh, zooming in from there, apologies for Chris's pronunciation. <laughs> Uh, so our first quote for this evening is, I want the iPhone of nuclear reactors. Was it John Barillaro or was it Donald Trump? Oh, it was John Barillaro. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Great. A very well-known nuclear... You know why? Because that is actually too coherent for <laughs> Donald Trump. Oh, yeah, okay. You ready, Rebecca? For yeah, your... sure. I've got one, one for one. You, yeah, you're 100% so far. Yeah. Right. Nothing's a hoax about that. It's a very serious subject. I want the cleanest air. I want the cleanest water. The environment is very important to me. I also want jobs. I don't want to close up our industry because somebody said you have to go with wind. Ooh. I, it could be either one, actually. Um, I mean, I kind of think it might be John Barillaro because Trump's like, I want the greatest, you know, air in the world or, you know, he's kind of so into, like, every narcissist is into extreme. So I'm just going, I'm just going to be crazy and say it's Donald Trump. Uh, yeah. Wow. You're going well. <laughs> Donald Trump, yeah. Yeah. Two for two. All right. Wow. <laughs> Quote number three. 
Anyone who talks about climate change during a bushfire crisis is a bloody disgrace. Oh, yeah. Well, it's John Barillaro. No, I don't think that... I don't think that um, Donald Trump has ever used the word bloody unless he's talking about a female journalist. <laughs> oh okay, so you're doing a bit too well at this. Number four. Sorry, I'm clever. <laughs> it's not my fault. I've been at university and read and spent a bunch of time. I'm a nerd. Keep going. <laughs> that's, why, that's why you're here. Yeah. Right. Number four. The environment is very important to me. Someone wrote a book that I'm an environmentalist. Oh, that's Donald Trump. Yeah. Four for four. Okay. No. This is far too easy, Chris. Next, next one. <laughs> make it much more difficult. Yeah, yeah. All right. Quote number five. The greatest thing that can happen would be if and when we get rid of the media. Then we would be able to live in peace and tranquility. Well, the pressure. I think probably Donald Trump. No, trick question. It was Jovi Peterson. Oh, was it really? <laughs> Just... Oh. That's so mean. Why would you do We've had political maniacs for a long, long time. Rebecca, thanks so much for joining us. You're welcome. Uh, Thank you for having me. And thanks to everybody for, for tuning in. Everybody who's listening at home, uh, join us in two weeks' time. We're going to do the next one of these called Oh My Darling Barker. Um, and we're going to have a panel uh, talking about the Darling River and the Murray-Darling Basin and all of the water issues related to that. Um, please follow us on Facebook at Nature New South Wales um, or on Twitter at Nature New South Wales. You can also follow me. I'm at Chris Gambian or Rebecca is at what? Rebecca Huntley too, I think, on Twitter. I'm also on Instagram. Rebecca is completely indifferent about her social media channels. <laughs> <laughs> if you, right. if you um, want to send us some money, uh, these come cheap so shout us a cocktail that'd be great but um we look forward to seeing you next time thanks a lot if you've enjoyed this podcast can you chip in to help us be the voice for nature we rely on donations to keep being effective loud and independent visit nature.org.au